Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. Firf and I are so excited today to be joined by some great experts in the field, and we're doing our first ever collaboration with Cardio Nerds. Firf, what are you excited about for today? Oh, my goodness. I feel like this episode has been years in the making, right? So Monty and I both did our residency with Dan and Amit over at Cardio Nerd. We have Bavio today who's here from Cardio Nerds, and we're just really excited to be doing a topic that everybody is interested in across the podcast. So this is going to be a great learning and a great experience. Monty and I are going to take the back seat to this one. We have a great experts here, and we have um, some people who've been working with us, some phenomenal trainees, and we're going to let them run the show. So first, let me take the time. I'm going to introduce Leon Merson. Leon did his residency at Johns Hopkins. He's in Barker Firm, which is my old firm, although shout out to Janeway too when I was in ACS. I can't turn back on them. Leon is going to be a Palm Crit Fellow at Penn next year, uh, and we're super excited. He's done some great radiology rounds with us that you probably have seen on our website. Leon, great to have you on the show. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome, Leon. And next, I'd like to quickly introduce Bavia, who is representing us from the Cardio Nerds and is also currently a senior resident on the Barker firm. So there's a lot of Barker connection between all of us and Dan and Amit, which we're so excited about. And Bavia is going to be a cardiology fellow next year at NYU. And Bavia is so excited to have you on. And thank you for bringing up this case. Thank you so much, Monty. Okay, everyone, one more excited shout out for this co-hosted podcast between the Cardio Nerds and the Palm Peeps. We're so excited to collaborate with each other and work towards democratizing digital education and creating content that can be accessed anytime, anywhere. Our case today involves an in-depth discussion on acute inpatient management of decompensated right heart failure and pulmonary hypertension. To start, I'm so excited to introduce our first expert, Dr. Rachel Damico. Dr. Damico is a pulmonologist and associate professor of medicine and the associate director of the physician scientist training program at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Damico received her medical degree, doctoral degree in molecular and cellular biology from the University of Pennsylvania. She completed her residency in the Osler Internal Medicine Training Program, a program very close to our hearts, and continued on as a PCCM fellow at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Damico has quickly achieved an international reputation in the field of pulmonary vascular biology and both basic and translational research, as well as clinical excellence in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And now it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Gomberg, who will represent the cardiology perspective as we tackle pH from both sides. Dr. Gomberg is a professor of medicine at GW. She also serves as a medical director of the pulmonary hypertension program. She completed her medical degree at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and did her residency at the Wheel Cornell Medical Center with fellowship in cardiovascular disease at Mount Sinai Medical Center. Her research focus is in understanding the epidemiology of pulmonary hypertension and development of novel therapeutics and biomarkers. Dr. Gomberg is internationally known for her work. She has had extensive grant funding and is published with over 150 articles, abstracts, reviews, and chapters. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today, Dr. Gomberg. Thanks for having me. All right, let's dive in. So to get started, I'd like to introduce a patient that Dr. Damico and I took care of in the MICU last year. Ms. K is a 21-year-old woman with a past medical history notable for congenital heart disease with primum ASD and sinus venosis status post multiple surgeries. And this was complicated by severe PAH. She's on home oxygen, sildenafil, ambrosentan, and sub-Q continuous troprostanol. She's presenting with palpitations, 
chest pain, and syncope. She presented as a transfer from an outside hospital where she arrived in unknown tachyarrhythmia and had undergone direct cardioversion due to tachycardia in the 200s and hypotension. On arrival to our hospital, she denied shortness of breath, but did endorse nausea, leg swelling, and poor medication adherence. Her initial vitals were notable for a blood pressure of 80 over 50, a heart rate of 110, a respiratory rate of 25, saturating 91% on 5 liters of oxygen. On exam, she is uncomfortable appearing but mentating. She has cool extremities with 1 to 2 plus lower extremity edema. Her JVP is at 15 centimeters. She has a RV heave and a 2 out of 6 systolic murmur, and her lungs are clear to auscultation bilaterally. I'll take us through some of her labs. Her labs initially were notable for creatinine of 2.0 from baseline of 1.0, an anion gap metabolic acidosis with a bicarb of 11, elevated lactate at 4.1, elevated troponin to 14, and a pro-BNP of 5,000. Her CBC was unremarkable. Her EKG demonstrated 2 to 1 atrial flutter with a heart rate of 130. So that was a whole lot of information. Dr. Damico. If you could give us some of your initial thoughts when you see a patient with this above presentation, and then as a part two, what is a useful clinical definition of RV failure for us? Sure. So I think there's a couple things that are worth reiterating as we try to contextualize her presentation. One, this is someone we are meeting for the very first time where she is already presenting with markers of end organ hyperperfusion. And I'll come to that in a second. Um, but I think importantly, she's someone who we at least understood had a long-standing history of pulmonary arterial hypertension since childhood and had, a, unfortunately, a long-standing history of non-adherence and had only recently been started on the vasodilators that you just described in your introduction. And so there are a lot of unknowns about these acute presentations, I mean, part because of the history of non-adherence, because some of her medications had just been started. And it wasn't entirely clear when we first met her, what were the drivers or incidents that led to her tachyarrhythmia when she presented to the outside hospital. Importantly, after she was cardioverted, she returned to sinus rhythm and we met her when she was in sinus rhythm. We spent a lot of time very acutely trying to really clarify what medication she had been taking, what the doses were, and if she was taking them properly. We also identified what her functional class was leading up to this event. And it certainly sounded like she had been a functional class three for the months preceding her presentation acutely. On physical exam, she had evidence that she had markers of RV dysfunction and RV failure. So again, you had mentioned some of them clearly in your short presentation. She had evidence of elevated jugular venous pressures. She had RV heaves, a loud P2. She had a pulsatile liver all of which are physical exam findings consistent with elevated right-sided pressures. She also had initial laboratory data that is certainly concerning that she had hypoperfusion. She had what appeared to be an acute on chronic renal failure with her elevated creatinine, certainly a markedly elevated pro-BMP, and a markedly elevated troponin, although that was confounded by her cardioversion that had happened just a few hours ago. So I think, again, on initial presentation, she was showing both historical features of RV dysfunction, meaning neocardiosation functional class 3 symptoms prior to her admission. And certainly in the acute state of admission, she was showing us markers of overt RV failure and potentially on preceding shock, which were developing in the hours after admission. 
And I want to give you a second to a pause there because you had asked me specifically about my definition or a reasonable definition for RV dysfunction, RV failure. And I think what I would emphasize to the learners is that obviously RV dysfunction and RV failure are not necessarily the same thing. Many patients can have RV dysfunction without overt signs of organ hypoperfusion. Often they have either clinical evidence of exercise intolerance. They may have the beginning evidence of inadequate contractile function based on imaging, but they may not have overt markers of organ hypoperfusion. And importantly, in this case, especially over the hours that followed her admission, she started to develop clear evidence of shock related to her RV dysfunction. So I would say what clinical syndrome of RV failure would be any sort of clinical entity where there's elevated right-sided filling pressures in RV dysfunction. And often we can get that for many different causes, but you would anticipate that you would see signs of organ hypoperfusion and perhaps hepatic congestion, but not necessarily markers of overt shock, which she ultimately developed. Yeah, I just wanted to add something. This is Marty that I think is really important, which is that when patients present with RV failure and whether they're in shock or impending shock, I think the first thing that we see really is hypoxemia because of the VQ mismatch. So they're often not cold and clammy like this case where it's overt shock, but they're sitting in the ER, they might be volume overload, and they're hypoxic. And the ER calls and says, hey, this patient looks fine. I don't know what you're worried about. I'm like, what, you just said four liters? Four liters nasal cannula. This patient's never been on oxygen before. That's the sign. And I think that's a big difference between RV and LV shock is that these patients look good until they don't. Yeah, I 100% concur. And I think that's actually one of the really important teaching points that, again, we can loop back to. But I think a lot of the markers we as medical providers have become used to when looking at patients who are in impending shock or in shock are distinct in patients who have RV failure. And so I think you have to be hypervigilant for those signs and symptoms because they tend to be much more subtle until they're no longer subtle, as Marty mentioned. And then, then you're really very anxious. The other thing that's, I think, a clinical pearl in this case is the reminder that patients that are very young can tolerate shock much better than older patients. And so just based from an epidemiologic standpoint, many of the patients we are seeing who are in some form of shock, epidemiologically, they tend to be older. Here we have a disease process, PAH. Certainly in this particular case, because it was associated with congenital heart disease, these are much younger patients than we're used to. And a much younger patient can tolerate the hemodynamic consequences of shock and sort of mask them from you much longer. So there has to be a tremendous amount of vigilance for these changes. Thank you both so much. I think that's been a fantastic overview of recognizing early RV decompensation, RV failure, and thymaclone pearls. I was wondering if you could take us through some common triggers for patients to develop decompensated right heart failure. What are some triggers that lead to decompensation a patient who may otherwise be more or less stable? Sure. So obviously there can just be progression of their underlying disease, either because it has not yet been diagnosed. And as you probably are aware, the signs and symptoms of pulmonary hypertension are not this specific. And so 
especially in younger patients and younger women who develop pulmonary hypertension, they may go undiagnosed for quite a while until they present in our decompensated states. So it can be just progression of their underlying disease, either in someone who doesn't have recognized disease or has unfortunately just progressed despite therapy. Unfortunately, we not infrequently see iatrogenic causes of decompensation. That can be either because providers are unaware of, let's say, the risks associated with anesthesia. So patients are put through procedures that have increased risk and the actual induction or mechanical ventilation associated with procedures can be a driver of an acute episode of RV failure if there's not an awareness ahead of time about the risk. We're clearly aware that either a patient's non-adherence or accidental withdrawal of their pulmonary vasodilators is a clear risk for precipitation of RV failure. And that can happen either because of patient's choices or because of a lack of awareness or a lack of access to these medications. And then some of the other things that can be seen and are reported in the literature are certainly things like pulmonary emboli. So you should be hypervigilant, again, to think about that in a patient who decompensates infection and the stressors associated with infection, and then clearly atrial arrhythmias, which I think we're going to talk about specifically in this case. And it's important to recognize those can be both the driver of the RV failure, but also can be the consequence of the RV failure. And many times, I think we can sort of not really know which is the chicken or the egg in those scenarios. Thank you so much, Dr. I feel like this is a tale as old as time. Like what came first? Is the AFib a symptom or is it the cause of the disease? So since you led us to that topic, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about atrial arrhythmias and their influence on RV de decompensation. Sure. So obviously we know that atrial tachyarrhythmias are not uncommon in the context of pulmonary hypertension. We understand, or at least we believe, that they have a significant negative impact on cardiac function. And they're usually not well hemodynamically tolerated in patients in pulmonary hypertension. So we obviously want our patients to be in sinus rhythm, not just rate control. And they certainly can be a nidus or driver of RV failure. And then we have to be very vigilant when patients are admitted in either a volume overloaded state or in the context of RV failure, that they are at risk of developing the atrial arrhythmias in that setting. So it's something, again, that we have to be aware of and we do tend to think about the management of atrial arrhythmias distinctly in pulmonary hypertension and RV failure. The cardiologist in me comes out when you start mentioning arrhythmias and atrial tachycardia. When I started back in the early 2000s, my then partner, Stu Rich, said, these patients don't get atrial arrhythmias. And I was like, well, how is that? And because we started seeing them. And fundamentally, the RA, the right atrium, can it takes a while before you start to see atrial arrhythmias. You have to dilate a lot more than the left atrium where you just have a little bit of left atrial enlargement and you are at significant risk for AFib. It's not the same on the right side. So we didn't used to see it as often, but now patients are living so much longer that this is developing. The other thing I wanted to say is that if your heart rate's over 100 and you're at rest, it's not normal, even if it feels normal. And these patients often have just slow atrial flutter or because the atrium is so big, it's just slower circuits and they're often mistaken as sinus tack or mistaken as atrial tack when it's actually a flutter and you can ablate it. And so one of the things that I used to joke 
with the folks in Chicago about was that how many times do we get an EKG and pulmonary clinic? And it's not very many. And so it's just for you to be on the lookout because you might be able to prevent it. And it's a definite sign just left atrial arrhythmias and left ventricular shock. When you have RV shock and you have an atrial arrhythmia, your prognosis is that much worse, right? So even if it's not the chicken or the egg, when we don't know which is which, it's just a bad thing to have. Those are some excellent pearls. Thank you. I think we'll keep going with the next bit of information about this case. So I'll present her echocardiographic findings and Bavia present her invasive hemodynamics. Her echo and admission demonstrated normal ejection fraction. She had septal flattening and systole and diastole. She had a severely enlarged right ventricle noted to be 7.3 by 9.8 by 6.3 centimeters, severely reduced RV function with a tapsy of 1.2 centimeters and a fractional area of change of 16%. She had a severely dilated right atrium she had severe eccentric TR. Her right ventricular systolic pressure was estimated to be 78, and she had a small pericardial effusion. So I'll jump right in with her cath numbers. So she had a right heart cath about a year prior to her presentation to our hospital. Her mean RA pressure was noted to be 11. Her RV pressure was 92 over 16. Her PA pressure was 92 over 42 with a mean PA pressure of 61. And her pulmonary wedge pressure was 3. Her cardiac index by thermodilution was 1.9 and by the FIC was 2.6, and her PVR was 16.6 Woods units. Dr. Gomberg, what are some of the data parameters we look for when assessing decompensation and RV dysfunction? And could you maybe take us through her echo and cath numbers and your initial thoughts on those? This is a dramatic case, and I'm guessing based on your intro, Rachel, that she wasn't on meds at that time or not on very many meds because this is really dramatic. And you don't usually see systemic PA pressure as a presentation unless it's a congenital heart disease or a really significant idiopathic heritable type. You don't get this high when it comes to associated causes or CTEF, right? So the mean is 61. But first, I'm going to go with the echo, which is an echo is a screening tool. I think that when it's done in the right place by the sonographers that are really attuned to looking at all these different measures, it's really helpful and it's a really good way to assess what's going on. Many times I'm asked about the PA pressure or the RV systolic estimated pressure on the echo. And I got to tell you, I never care. And it drives everybody crazy because I say, I just don't care because it's a function of the blood pressure and heart rate at the time. It's a function of the cardiac index. And so actually decreasing RV systolic pressure estimations could be a worse sign. And what I care about is what the RV looks like. So you gave me an example where here's the right ventricle. The area shows severe RV dilatation by the, the numbers given. The TAPSI even was low at 1.2. So less than 1.8 is abnormal. I'm talking to a Hopkins group who... Paul Forfia was the first paper looking at TAPSI. I got to tell you, I don't like TAPSI that much either. And I'm saying that with trepidation, but it's because it's either normal or it's not a good measure to follow over time. And that's because everybody here on this call has seen that when you have an acute PE, it's not the part where the 
tricuspid annulus is that goes bad. It's right. It's all the way up at the apex. And so you could have a normal tapsy with a severely enlarged RV and dysfunction. So here, this case is dramatic, reduced, and probably a function of how sick she is. But it's not something that I look at in isolation. The fractional area change that you gave, I think, was 16%, which is really low, and it hits the high-level severity of dysfunction. What I think is really important for those of you who don't know what fractional area change is, it's the ratio of the end systolic and end diastolic area of the right ventricle. And so it, what we've found over time is that this correlates really well with the RV ejection fraction that we measure in MRI. I love RVEF by three-dimensional echo. It hasn't panned out yet. We haven't gotten the technology down to a point where we can just follow it. But I think that really, whenever I did early clinical trial development, I would, I've would i seen changes in our RVEF, but not change and fractional area change, but not change in TAPSI. And so that's sort of my bias. The other thing that I forgot to mention is that intraventricular interdependence. So, you know, the RV D-shaped sign that we see on the LV is pretty common. I don't think it gives us a sense of how bad it is, but it does show that the RV is affected because the interventricular interdependence is that much more significant when your RV fails. And then finally, I think what's also really important on this is the tricuspid regurgitation and pericardial effusion. So tricuspid regurgitation, even though it seems basic that the higher the velocity jet the worse off you are. It's really been shown over multiple data sets, even to show as a function of change, that if you went from a normal to an abnormal, that predicts a worse prognosis. So this RV essentially on this echo is awful. And I think it's really important that you don't just take one measure and say, oh, the TAPSI looks normal and therefore it's okay. You really have to look at the images. Now, when it comes to the cath, wow, also awful and consistent, obviously, with severe pulmonary vascular disease. You know, the RA pressure is 11 and the wedge is 3, which makes me think that RV and RA is not working at all because we've unloaded the LV and still the RV is not normal in its pressure. The RV EDP is probably the most prognostic thing that nobody talks about because 16 is really not good. And especially in congenital heart disease, you really want to look at that RVEDP. And this is not my area of expertise. I, I've learned it by default. But the RVEDP of 16 tells me that there's not much RV reserve for something like this, an atrial tachycardia. And then the mean PA is 61. Again, this is because it's a congenital heart disease patient with severe vascular disease. The cardiac index is less than two, which is a marker of a bad prognosis. And the PVR, which is supposed to be, we used to say less than three, now it's even less than 2.2. It's 16 and a half. I mean, it, it's awful. The amount of work that the right ventricle has to do in order to get through the circuit is enormous. And then I think what's also important is that even though we have thermal dilution and an estimated thick, that when we do these calculations, it's always with the thermal dilution. This is what we recommend in all of our guidelines. It doesn't matter if you have severe pH or severe TR. We've shown my colleague, Marius Hoper, who's a good friend, he showed now it's over 20 years ago that in patients 
with severe TR, moderate TR, mild TR, you did the real thick and under the hood and actually calculated thermal dilution was better than estimated thick and it correlated nicely. So don't worry about how much TR there is. Use the thermal dilution. And then, you know, this patient is essentially falling off that cliff. That's what we usually say, or in that downward spiral, the mean PA has not dropped significantly, but I don't know, maybe it, maybe now it's 50 because the cardiac index is even lower. So again, it's a really sick patient based on the echo and the cath. Yeah, and I would say that the one thing, having heard that excellent description, is how we don't look at any single piece of data. It's really the holistic collection of all those variables that really help us understand optimally what we think is happening. Yeah, and look at the images. I think that one of the things that I often get made fun of is this RV score that I inherited which is you just look at the RV and the LV and you give it a score based on function and size. And when we looked at our database in Chicago, that was the best measure of prognosis and mortality over everything that we all look at. And it's because we that's how we used to read echoes back when echo was developed. You just looked at it. You didn't do all these fancy calculations. And you know what? Severe has grades of severe right? My colleagues, when they read an echo, severe is severe. But I look at it and I'm like, oh, that's not so bad. And it's, again, the perspective and understanding that it can get that much worse. But you really just need to look at it. So you can make all the calculations you want. But if you don't look at the image, you might be missing something. Dr. Gomberg, thank you so much. I know I'm going to listen to that at least five times and try to digest all of the amazing pearls you just gave us and running through that data. Um, you've already kind of led us into this, but can you just give us a brief overview of some of the practical differences between RV and LV failure? Yeah, sure. I think it stems from the fact that the right ventricle is not the left ventricle. They're not identical twins. And having had twins, I can say that mine are not identical to boy and a girl, and they're very different. And that's what we need to think about when it comes to the RV and the LV. Back to embryology, the development is different. The RV and the RVOT developed from the anterior heart field, the LV and the atrial cham chambers from the primary heart field. And this is why the LV can handle a pressure overload and the RV is more of a volume overload. The walls are different. They're thin in the RV. They're thicker in the LV. The shape's different. One's crescent, which is why echo's not that easy to do so often, versus a spherical shape. And then just how it actually moves and contracts. Different. One's squeezing just from inflow to outflow, the other's squeezing and twisting. So I think that fundamentally they're different. But I think for me, what's most important when it comes to RV failure and what difference makes the most impact, it's really the coronary perfusion and perfusion pressure. 30, 40 years ago, we were measuring actually coronary sinus pressures and actually looking at these different perfusions. And that's where we get this from animal studies and from early cath lab data, which shows that the LV and RV autoregulate different. The differences in the right ventricle and the left ventricle when it comes to coronary perfusion. So the right coronary gets perfusion both in systole and diastole, whereas the left coronary is only diastole. And so why is that important? This phasic perfusion, as we say, like the systemic pressure and the coronary pressure, 
help the right ventricle in times of stress versus the LV when it's all diastolic because it's getting it from the left coronary. That's why we initially treated LV shock with a balloon pump, which we're not going to do when it comes to the RV. So I think that the perfusion pressure of the coronaries is not thought about enough when it comes to shock. And it's going to have a big effect when it comes to our management, which we're going to get to over the course of this hour, because it doesn't really matter that they look different or they behave differently, but this perfusion is the key to actually getting them in and out of shock. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I think let's jump into the management of acute right ventricular failure. I want to get back to our patient, Miss Kay, who is by all evidence showing a very low perfusion at the time of her presentation. I think a lot of the discussion, Bobby and Dr. Damico were there, was about whether her acute decompensation was triggered by atrial arrhythmia, medication non-adherence, as well as the contribution of volume overload. So I wanted to address this to Dr. Damico. In broad strokes, can you discuss the general management patients with decompensated RV failure who are in shock or in a low perfusion state? What are some of the key tenants? Sure. So from my perspective, what I try to both review in my head and, and teach trainees is I do it in categories. First, you want to normalize as much as possible the preload. Now, in the vast majority of patients with chronic pulmonary hypertension or PAH who come in with RV failure, they have excess preload. There are going to be rare exceptions, patients who are vomiting, have diarrhea. For some reason, they're dehydrated. They have some mixed picture. But again, in the, most of our cases, they have excess preload and you're trying to normalize preload. And that involves either diuretics or US, really, to get rid of that preload. The second category is reducing afterload. And that's really multifactorial, right? You, you want to minimize things that could exacerbate or worsen RV afterload. So what would those things be? Certainly one we know is accidentally or intentionally withholding longstanding vasodilators, right? We, if they're using their vasodilators, those are RV afterload reducing agents. So we, as pulmonary hypertension providers, always tell our staff, never withhold them without a discussion with us. And certainly in someone who's an RV failure, that has to be a very thoughtful conversation before those drugs are without. Second, you want to try the best you can to avoid events that could make RV afterload worse. What could those be? Well, we're all aware of hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, so we want to minimize hypoxia. But as a reminder, hypoxic vasoconstriction is exacerbated or potentiated by acidemia and hypercapnia. So while we don't necessarily encourage you to intubate patients because of the negative impact on afterload, meaning mechanical intubation and positive pressure ventilation while unloading the LV is certainly RV afterload inducing. We want to try to minimize hypoxic vasoconstriction as much as possible. And again, we want to minimize the negative effects of positive pressure ventilation, if at all possible. So then there are some things we can specifically do in the ICU setting to try to acutely try to decrease RV afterload. And those would be things like inhaled vasodilators. So depending on where you are and what you have access to, that might be inhaled prostacyclins and or inhaled nitric oxide. In this particular scenario, we actually initiated inhaled nitric oxide. And then the other obvious thing we can do in terms of trying to acutely 
reduce RV afterload is in the right context, you can introduce systemic vasodilators. And again, that was ultimately what was started within a few hours of this patient coming to the CU and she was started on IV remodulin. So those are the preload and afterload components. The other things I often think about and I want the health officers to remember is you have to maintain adequate RV perfusion. Just as we discussed, this is a really important component of RV function and dysfunction and decompensation as patients go through this spiral. While this is not necessarily evidence-based, we tend to recommend the use of vasopressin and levofed to maintain adequate systemic blood pressure to make sure you have adequate RV perfusion. And in the right context, you can think about ionotropes, anodilators, things like dobutamine or milrinone, but you have to recognize that these will often reduce your systemic blood pressure. And so I really would discourage you from running to those first. It's really those other four things. Then I think sixth in the lineup would be identifying what could have been the trigger and obviously trying to address any potential triggers that might be playing a role, things like pulmonary emboli, infections, things of that nature. Obviously, monitoring for arrhythmias because these patients, if they have not developed an atrial arrhythmia, are at a high risk. And then really the important thing that can't be underemphasized is addressing sort of goals because RV failure and shock in the setting of chronic pulmonary hypertension like this case have a very high mortality. And I think it's always important that people recognize that sort of risk of acute mortality is not just in those first few hours, but it persists. So I think it's important to have that be part of the holistic approach for the management of RV failure and shock. Dr. Gamico, thank you so much for giving us such a useful framework to use. Dr. Gomberg, I wanted to ask what your approach was to these patients in terms of hemodynamic monitoring. Do you find a PA catheter to be helpful in these cases? So I think contrary to what you might think I would say, or how they do it elsewhere. I don't find a PA catheter to be helpful in the CU or ICU. I find it's helpful if you have absolutely no idea what's going on and it's a new patient to you, but actually the risks associated with PA rupture and monitoring that is not worth the extra data you're going to get from that. Because what I really care about is fluid status and cardiac output. So how can I get that? I can get that with just a neckline, with just getting a CVP and a mixed venous sat. Look, if you don't know what's going on and you do a swan, which in this case you should be doing under fluoroscopy because it's such an enlarged RV and PA that you really wouldn't want to be doing that bedside, you could leave it in. But what's the extra data that you're getting? You're just getting PA pressures. And there's nothing worse than just looking at a PA pressure continuously because it's just not going to change or it's going to change when you cough or it's going to change when you're in pain and it's going to change when you vagal, all things that you don't want. And it's not going to change your management. So you're not titrating any medications to a PA pressure. It's not like an acute hypertensive emergency. This is something that you really want to get flow and you want to get your, as Rachel said, the preload is key. These patients often have so much volume on them and their RA pressure is 28. I'm much happier just following the right atrial pressure and the mixed venous sat once a shift and calling it a day because that's really what's the most important and urine output. And so I'm not getting any of that stuff extra from a PA catheter. So I typically don't 
swan them and keep them just like my LV, I think it's very different. I think what we need to measure can be measured well without having the swan. I also don't really use serial echoes in the ICU as a non-invasive way. And again, that's because of all the, the issues that come with echo and its variability. And what are you actually measuring? So you don't need the IVC because you have the CVP. And the RV is not going to just dramatically shrink and become unloaded. Rachel did a really nice job of going through preload and afterload. And frankly, I think the most important thing is the preload more than afterload, because even when we have patients in clinical studies back when we were against placebo, the mean PA pressure dropped like four or five millimeters of mercury. That's not a huge afterload reduction. So all of our medicines aren't going to acutely drop the afterload. What it's going to do is increase blood flow. And what we've learned over time is that they actually end up probably helping the myocardium more than they're helping the pulmonary vasculature, even in the acute setting. So again, echo, I think it's helpful to have one when you're coming to the ICU and then probably before you go home so you have a new baseline, but I don't measure it serially. As far as non-invasive, I don't have any good answers. There are folks that have been looking at other ways of measuring cardiac output in the ICU. I think it's worth looking at, but I don't think it's ready for prime time. That's phenomenal. Like you had mentioned, preload management is such an important aspect of care of these patients. So I think that's something that we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into. Dr. Damico, could you talk about your approach for diuresis or volume removal in these patients, specifically including some goals? Obviously, no two patients are the same, but in broad strokes, as a resident, one of the things that we're taught very early is the classic teaching of be very careful when diuresing somebody with RV failure, RV dysfunction, no more than like net negative of 500 cc's or so. I must have been told that 10 times as an intern. So I question how true is that? So in general, I hope I didn't tell you then no more than five. It was not you. So I think one of the things, there's clearly a big difference between someone who gets admitted for volume overload and someone like her who's in shock. So that's important. I think what to remember is we tend to be conservative when someone's just admitted for volume overload, primarily because patients in general, if they're not decompensated, you don't want to push them over the edge by doing anything too fast. And the one thing you can't order on the computer is time and patience. And so um, while you've been probably taught to go slow, and people use that 500 number as some marker of slowness, it's really just to not to cause rapid shifts that are not necessary if nothing catastrophic is happening because patients don't have the ability to compensate if you have rapid shifts. I, I think the term, and I hope I don't say anything Dr. Gomberg disagrees with, but I'd be still very interested is I personally am never super happy when people say that pulmonary arterial hypertension patients are preload dependent. And that's because I think people are mixing up different concepts. There are clearly disease processes with RV dysfunction where you might argue the patient is preload dependent. Someone who's had a massive PE or an RV infarct where they're, otherwise their pulmonary circuitry is normal and low resistance and having a higher filling pressure may be beneficial to those patients. But as a general, patients with pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary arterial hypertension of chronic nature 
have way more preload, again, with rare exceptions like vomiting, diarrhea, bleeding, whatever it would be, than they need and are very tolerant and do better when their preload is reduced. And that goes back to this concept of reticular interdependence. I think we talked about that a little bit earlier. But the reality is because of reticular independence, again, with the septum being pushed over into the LV, the LV is underfilled. And when we reduce preload, it actually gives the LV space to be filled more adequately. While we would prefer, if there's no rush, not to have you diarrhea five liters in one day because you can't put it back, I don't think there's a reason to think about most of these patients as preload dependent and be as anxious as we probably make you at our institution about diuresing them. Dr. D'Amico, I completely agree, but also will take a different stance, which is the majority of the pH patients, when they come in decompensated and volume overloaded, let's say not in this shock state, the faster you get it off, the faster you get them out. They hate having a CVP of 20. Um, they're much happier when it's eight. And actually, my goals are usually net negative four to six liters. And everybody laughs at me and calls me like a crazy person. And I can make you into a prune very quickly. And as long as you're measuring your electrolytes continuously, it works a lot faster. Now, this patient, I wouldn't be taking off that much because it's a very different situation. But I also think that we underestimate what's true euvolemia whether it's somebody who has PH left heart disease or PAH, we're not good at it. And I think that there are many times that people are sent home still volume up because of this, let's go really slowly. There have been plenty of transfers that I'm sure you've seen over years where they're up 40 pounds and they take off 10 and they send them home and then they just come right back in irrespective of what the pH is. So I do think that the preload dependence is really just the acute, as you stated beautifully, that if the pulmonary vasculature is used to normal and now the RV falls apart, that's a preload dependent situation. And that the majority of the folks that you're seeing with pulmonary vascular disease are not preload dependent in that they need a high preload. A normal heart when the CVP is over 15, is going to fall apart. But that's not going to be the case in somebody who has chronic pulmonary vascular disease and RV dysfunction. So thank you for those excellent tips, everyone. So I wanted to ask you both about treatment options for afterload reduction for the RV, especially in regards to pulmonary vasodilators. I know you both do extensive work in this space, and pH medications are something many of us aren't as familiar with compared to more common medications in both of our fields. So what are some of the general classes of pulmonary vasodilators and what should we do with a patient's home medications in the acute setting? Sure. So right now, we currently have three pathways that we can approach with FDA-approved drugs for pulmonary trial hypertension. We have inadequate nitric oxide signaling in patients with pulmonary trial hypertension. And really, your options there from what we currently have would be the PDE5 inhibitors, that in the U.S. would be sildenafil and tadalafil. Of note, sildenafil can be given IV, so patients who are acutely ill or can't take POs or are vomiting, it's always important to recognize you still have an option for giving them PDE5 inhibitors as an IV formulation. Also within that pathway, but not a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, would be adempas or rheosiglot. This is a cyclic GMP activator. 
Again, the clinical pearl there to remember is that those drugs cannot be used together and should not be used with nitrates and nitrates because they can potentiate one another. So that would represent one of the common classes. And again, probably the most common used drugs are the PE5 inhibitors. The second pathway we target is the endothelian pathway. There's too much endothelin-1 when patients have pulmonary arterial hypertension. And currently we have three antagonists to that pathway. They're all oral, bosantin, lateris, and macetantin. Then the third pathway would be the prostacycline pathway. And again, this is historically important because it's the first class of drugs we had. Obviously, with IV Flolan, we currently have subcutaneous and IV remodulin, inhaled prostacyclines. And then more recently, we have oral prostacycline as well as an IP3 agonist. So those represent the three pathways we target and the currently FDA-approved drugs that are specific for the treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And then a couple of key things for health officers to know about those different drugs. Again, we strongly discourage anyone withholding these drugs without communication with pulmonary hypertension providers because of the dangers. It's also important to recognize that many institutions don't have access to all those drugs or delivery systems to give all those drugs. So these are important things to know that if you admit a patient who is on a drug, it's important to recognize whether you do or don't have it on your formulary and that a patient's family may have to bring in their medication if it's not on your formulary. This would be specific for the ERAs because many of those are not on all hospital formularies because they're part of REMS programs. Inhalational drugs like Tyveso have to be delivered through a specialized device. And so Again, these are all things to be aware of, especially if someone's coming in the middle of the night. It's not only that you know what drugs there are, that you're writing for the correct drugs, but you have an actual mechanism to deliver those drugs. I just wanted to add that all of our oral meds can't be crushed. So if you're not taking PO, we don't want to do that. I get asked that a lot. The other thing is that the intravenous therapy, no house officer, probably not even fellows, should be writing those orders because. It's really patient-specific, and if you make a mistake, it's like writing a bad chemotherapy order. You just don't want to be in that position. So if somebody comes on an intravenous pump, one, the patient knows most. So if the patient's talking to you, you should ask them questions. If there's an issue where they're not getting their drug, you just put in a regular IV and hook it up. I think those are the main emergencies that house officers need to be aware of when it comes to these very specialized therapies that you don't want to be writing these orders. You want to talk to the pH specialist or if you're in a rural hospital or in a hospital that doesn't have familiarity, there are agencies, the nursing sort of distributors, they can call. It's usually on the pump. Patient usually has it and you can call for help because you don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to give these patients IV fluids. You don't want to cause harm. You want to actually just get them to where they can be treated best. And those pumps are not normal IV pumps. So it's not something where you could just have a nurse put it on a normal pump. Obviously, these are very specialized. And I think the key is that the phone numbers are there. So you should not hesitate to call for help. That's why they exist. Dr. Gomberg and Dr. Damico, thank you so much. The really practical aspects of how to handle this emergency as a house officer, I think, is some of the most important information for trainees. So we really appreciate that. Dr. Gomberg, I want to ask a follow-up question, and that is your approach to inotropes and pressors in these patients. So one of my goals is to finish 
and retire and have some kind of standardized protocol for RV failure. It's in desperate need and doesn't seem to want to get funded, but in need. And the reality is we just, we don't have a standard of care. I think that all of us over time have a particular agent that we like. I was happy to hear that Rachel likes vasopressin and, and norepinephrine because I started with low-dose dopamine. That's what I was taught to use and it worked, but I found that they often got tachycardic. So you don't want tachycardia. You want diastolic filling. You don't want them to have to race against themselves. And so I would find that if I went up on dopamine, I would cause tachycardia. So then I switched to phenylephrine, which I still like and is very effective and often is easy to get on the units, but it's a large volume. And so we keep pressing the point that preload is not your friend, like you want to get rid of it. And then I'm giving them tons of volume when I could be giving them a lot less volume with norepinephrine. So over time, I've switched. I know in pediatrics, they use vasopressin a lot and they get really good results. I find with the adults, I don't get as much blood pressure improvement because really what the goal is to try to get the systemic blood pressure up. In this patient, her PA pressure was 90, 40, 60. If her blood pressure is 90 over 60, there's no flow. We're not helping. And so I kind of like to shoot for a systolic blood pressure that's at least 10 millimeters. There's no set criteria. But I don't find that these patients have problems of being hypertensive. And I also don't like titrating. So if you think about, for our pulmonary peeps, extubation, you do all this testing and that they're not ready to be extubated, you put them back on the vent and you rest them. So if you're trying to come down on vasoactives and their pressure drops, the goal isn't to keep titrating during the day to see how it goes. I feel like you're, they're just not ready and just wait. I think Rachel said patience is key. Patience is key. The RV will recover, but you got to be patient. And tinkering doesn't help the situation. So for me, it's whatever you can do to get the systolic blood pressure up. I usually end up being able to do that with norepinephrine or vasopressin. Then when it comes to the inotropes like melanone and dobutamine, I've been in different institutions where each one has a preference. I trained with dobutamine and I like dobutamine, but I find I never really have to use it that often. I usually get it just by improving their systemic pressures. Again, increasing right coronary perfusion does the trick. Because when I use dobutamine, either I'm dropping the systemic pressure or I'm getting tachycardia, it, it doesn't help the situation. And then known, even though our anesthesia studies show that the pressures drop acutely with known in the pulmonary vasculature, the problem is it's a great systemic vasodilator. And so now you're dropping everything, which is counter to what we're trying to do. So I tend to not use inotropes very often. If I have to stick to inotropes, then I'm going sort of okay, this patient's really crashed and I'm going to need to do more advanced therapy. So it's really, you don't want to make them tachycardic. You don't want to give them lots of volume and you want to get their systemic pressures up. And however you want to do it, that's great. I find if you need more than one presser, it's usually a bad prognosis. If you're on three, likely not going to turn that RV around unless there's some reversible cause. I think once I found adrenal insufficiency, relative adrenal insufficiency, and they came off of everything, but that was once 
and not very common. You've given me a great segue into my next question, talking about that crashing patient who needs a little bit more support. So how do you think about the role of mechanical support in these patients and what options do you usually go to? Yeah, so um, I will confess that I'm not in favor yet of impellas and RVADs and all these kind of pretty standard LV cardiogenic shock support. And that's because one, folks were trying to do it when it was too late. I think that Dr. Rosenzweig actually at Columbia, they have a good series of patients, pediatric patients, where they did use a new type of RVAD with less pulmonary flow. So, right, you don't want to have huge amounts of flow across the pulmonary vasculature because what does that do? It just causes bleeding and rupture. And so how do you balance it? And I think that eventually we will get there and we might have some kind of RVAD, an assist device that we can utilize. I haven't had any experience that has been positive because the folks that were trying to do it were doing it when they were already end stage. And putting patients in Trendelenburg in itself can be fatal. So ECMO is really the only option that I've used. Um, and it's been VA, but I've also used VV, especially in somebody who had like a pneumonia or some reversible cause when it wasn't that I needed necessarily cardiac output, but the hypoxemia was playing a bigger role. And I think what's most important, and it's like this with LV shock, is that you want to, ECMO should not be used as a forever thing. It's a bridge. So if this is somebody who's end stage, who wasn't a transplant candidate, to put them on ECMO and they don't have a reversible cause, it's just progressive of disease, like that's not good for anyone and not appropriate, not what we should be looking for. ECMO is a bridge to recovery. It's sometimes a bridge to transplant, like they're on the list and waiting and we think that it's going to happen any day, or it's something that you think is reversible and the ECMO is just needed right at that time. And again, I think that we're getting better with these kind of devices, but we're not there yet. There's a really nice device that they have that's approved in Canada that has less pulsatility and patients can walk around. We don't have that yet because I think ultimately that's what we would like is to just really improve their overall capacity and reserve so that we can buy them some time to get to a transplant. I think the one thing that we didn't discuss that's totally underappreciated is the oxygen. So we did discuss hypoxic vasoconstriction at the very beginning, but unlike when you're on the ventilator and you're okay with a PaO2 of 60 and the SATs are 90, you really want these people to be normal oxygen because oxygen is the best vasodilator that we have. You know, we're sitting here talking about adding these advanced therapies and mechanical support, but sometimes just even just oxygen allows the patient to rest and recover. So I just wanted to put that in there because I was thinking, oh, we didn't mention oxygen, which is, it seems silly, but it's completely underappreciated. Thank you so much. I, that was really phenomenal. To give the conclusion to our case, talk a little bit about her management. Miss K spontaneously reverted back to normal sinus rhythm. She was placed on amiodarone to help maintain her sinus rhythm. She was initially placed on vasopressin for a presser and started on inhaled nitric oxide for acute afterload reduction, correction of hypoxemia. As I take it, a challenging decision was made to start her IV traprostanil prostacyclin analog, and she was really carefully monitored during that time. She did really well, underwent successful diuresis with loop diuretics alone, 
and eventually her hypoxia improved and she was transitioned back to room air and pressors were weaned successfully. Throughout her hospitalization, she was evaluated by the transplant team and by the shock team for consideration of ECMO should she progress and compensate further. Before we finish, I think it's really important to address the morbidity of this type of presentation. Dr. Gomberg, what is the general prognosis for this patient population as a whole? What's your approach to code status discussion, patient and family discussions, these situations? Yeah, I think that like all ICU patients, this needs to be discussed in somebody that's got acute RV failure. The prognosis just entering the unit can be at 40% mortality. So even if they look okay and it's a young patient and this patient, you know, had congenital heart disease and likely will withstand this event, it's not a good thing. And I think everybody needs to be prepared. I think what's really important is that most of these PH patients have longstanding physicians who know the family and know the patient. And a lot of times I've found that house officers think that they can just have code discussions because that's what they're supposed to do. But it's going to go a lot more smoothly if you have somebody who knows the patient and knows the family. Many times we don't discuss this in the clinic because they are doing well until they're not. In somebody who's progressing, I think that's something that we do discuss in the clinic beforehand. But I think it's really key that it's part of the admission, but not necessarily from you guys. And if, it, if somebody is really that decompensated, like this woman, getting the appropriate physicians that know the patient involved, if possible, is a really good thing. Heart failure, we don't have all those interventional devices yet for RV failure to get them through the ICU stay. And understanding that their prognosis is not good, I think makes it so that it's not a surprise if these measures that we're taking and being very aggressive don't work. Because after a few days, if your RV is not gonna recover, it's not gonna recover. If you are escalating pressors, I think it's very similar to most ICU shock patients. But I think that the issue of coding is extremely important because now it's over 20 years ago, they did a study and looked at all the patients that presented with pulmonary hypertension in Germany. And the amount of patients that left the hospital after a code was like out of 100, it was like five without neurologic deficit. Part of being a physician is caring for patients in the best way possible, both with living and improving their quality of life, but also in their death. And I think that it's as important, if not more important, that happens. And so even if there's a possibility of reversing what's going on, having an arrhythmic death and getting intubated is really not what we're trying to do. Like we need to do what's best for the patient and for the family. Thank you so much, Dr. Damico and Dr. Gomberg. This was a fantastic discussion. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. I'm sure I'll listen to this episode five times to try and digest everything that was said and all of the amazing pearls you both shared. Huge thanks to our experts for joining us today and having such an important discussion with us. I just echo Bavia's sentiment. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, thank you to our guests. That was absolutely terrific. Thank you to Bavia and Leon for coordinating this Home Peeps and Cardio Nurse collaboration. I think it was a, an amazing episode. And thank you all for listening. We'll uh, see you next time.